0: Um, If you look on ICON, there is a link to um, faculty evaluations for lecture evaluations. So please, you can start doing those now, otherwise you need to do them after you take the exam in a couple of weeks. So if you want to get a jump start on doing faculty evaluations for lectures, um, you can start doing that now. Again, it's on ICON on the content page. Thank you. morning. My name is Jeff Wilson. I'm from the Department of Internal Medicine in the Pulmonary and Critical Care Division. And uh, I'm going to talk to you guys today about evaluating the patient that presents with dyspnea. These are the objectives that I want to go through today. I want you to understand a little bit about the definitions and basic physiology related to dyspnea. One of the major things that I want to get across today is that that there are really a lot of diverse causes that lead people to present to you with shortness of breath, and many of those have nothing to do directly with the harder lungs. I want you to understand a little bit about how history and physical examination are used to make the diagnosis, and then we'll talk a little bit about some of the testing that we use. I've divided the talk today into two parts. The first is gonna be uh, more of a lecture format where I'm going to review some things that I think are important about it and I'm going to try to get through that as fast as I can and get to what I think is probably the more important and even interesting part of it which is I'm going to show you about eight cases of patients that presented with dysmia, and we're going to go through those uh, and I want to see if you can help me figure them out. So the This is part of the definition of dyspnea from the American Thoracic Society. And I think if you read through that, and then I ask you as a group, how many of you have had dyspnea? How many people would raise their hand? Yeah, most of us. I think most of us have had a subjective sense of difficulty breathing at some time in our life. Usually it's it's a result of what we're doing. And yet you don't go to see a doctor for that. And so the reason that we see people that come to us with dyspnea is that they perceive this sensation that they're having as being abnormal for the amount of activity that they're doing that's causing it. And that's why people come to see us with this complaint. These are a few definitions. Um, Going back to nea, which is a a Greek term that means related to breathing. And... uh, Hyperpnea just means that there's been an increase in minute ventilation, and that could be either from an increase in tidal volume or respiratory rate. Tachypnea and bradypnea are related directly to the breathing frequency, either being too high or too low. Orthopnea is increasing shortness of breath in the supine position, most commonly related to patients that have congestive heart failure, but as I'm going to show you, it's also related to a lot of other conditions as well that you have to keep in mind, and then lastly I put in there this term platypnea, which many of you Perhaps never heard of which means onset or worsening of dyspnea in the upright position And there's a select number of conditions that can cause that and if you're interested I would I would have you look that up in your textbook because we won't have time to talk about it today I think it's fair to say that the physiology of what causes dyspnea is still uh, not very well worked out. We know that there's a variety of receptors that are both uh, in the lung next to pulmonary capillaries that are called J receptors. There's receptors in the airways that sense both irritant and stretch. There are respiratory muscle receptors and then there are chemoreceptors in their aortic and carotid bodies and in the respiratory center in the medulla of the brainstem that sense changes in carbon dioxide and oxygen tension and pH. And in this schematic you can see how these different inputs from chemoreceptors, mechanoreceptors, proprioceptors, all feedback on the respiratory neurons in the medulla. This is afferent activity. There's a copy sent to the cortex, and I'm gonna show you in just a minute some newer research on where uh, dyspnea is sensed in the cortex. And then there's feedback from the cortex back to the respiratory neurons, neurons that results in increased motor activity that goes directly to the respiratory muscles. And in any given patient, depending on the disease that they have, they might have input from a number of these receptors, not just one. And which of those is the most important clinically is pretty difficult to tell in most situations. This is some recent data that utilized functional brain MRI imaging in healthy volunteers. And these next two slides are not in your handout and you won't be tested over them. And basically what they found is that if they put a resistive load on normal volunteers and then functionally image their brain, that the areas that that, uh, lit up were in the uh, insular cortex and uh, in the, uh, what's the name of this? Sensory motor cortex. You can tell I'm a lung doctor, not a neurophysiologist. (laughs) (laughs) And when they further went on to try to figure out what caused the unpleasant sensation of dyspnea that might perhaps bring patients to see us, And they did this by adding a negative uh, emotional stimulation while the patients or the subjects were breathing against this inspiratory resistance. They found that this was primarily related to increased uptake in the right insular cortex and the right amygdala. So I think there's beginning to become some increasing understanding of where dyspnea is sensed, but in terms of actually putting this into clinical practice, it's not something that I certainly use on an everyday basis. Now, perception of dyspnea is modulated by a lot of different factors besides just the pure physiology, okay? Uh, It's been known that uh, anxiety, anger, depression typically will upregulate dyspnea. So for any given stimulus, people tend to feel more short of breath. There's also a a sense of memory of past performance. So people think back, they think, gosh, I used to be able to do this and I didn't have any problems, and now I go try to do it and I feel really short of breath and so they sense that maybe there's something wrong with them because of that. Activity level turns out to be really important because as people begin to get short of breath, they frequently will begin to down-regulate their activity level. Okay? And so you'll ask somebody, you know, are you having trouble with shortness of breath? And they'll say no. But then perhaps their spouse will say, well, yeah, but that's because you really don't do anything anymore. And you ask a little bit more about why that is, and you end up finding out that they're not doing as much because they were having trouble with shortness of breath. So it's always really important to talk about with people their activity level to get a sense of how to interpret what they're telling you in that regard. And then it turns out that there's a tremendous amount of individual variability in how people perceive dyspnea. So you can have two people that have very similar physiology in terms of their heart and lung function but may have very different sensations of dyspnea and very different functional capacities because of that. And I think that's true for a lot of symptoms uh, besides dyspnea. So it turns out that how you perceive dyspnea, or perhaps in this case how you don't perceive dyspnea, can be really important. And it's important to recognize that there are some situations where the patient's perception of dyspnea is gonna be at misleading perhaps at best. And I'm gonna show you a study that illustrates that. This was done in 11 patients that had asthma and near-fatal asthma attacks. So these are patients that basically have almost died from asthma, usually from hypercapnic respiratory failure. A second group of patients had asthma and no near-fatal attacks. And then there was a third group of people that were normal controls with no lung disease. All of the asthma patients were stable at the time that they were tested. And again, what they did is they had them breathe through an increased inspiratory resistance by basically narrowing down the airway that they were breathing through. In other words, having them breathe something like a straw, for example. And when they did that, and then they asked them to rate their sense of dyspnea on this scale on the vertical axis called a Borg scale, okay, which goes from zero to 10, and I've put down here what four and one would mean, okay? One would mean very slight dyspnea and a four would be somewhat severe. You can see that at the highest inspiratory resistance here, the patients who were normal, okay, without asthma, reported a four on the Borg scale, in other words, somewhat severe dyspnea. People that had near-fatal asthma, however, barely perceived that as being troublesome at all to them, okay? when the asthmatics without near-fatal asthma were somewhere in the middle. So what this means clinically is is that you have to be careful when you talk about patients with dyspnea because some people and some asthmatics in particular are what we call poor perceivers of asthma, meaning that they don't perceive their asthma symptoms. And what this does is that it leads to a delay in the onset to when they seek medical care, and that delay can sometimes be potentially life-threatening. And it points out why in addition to taking a history and doing a physical exam, it's important to do objective testing such as lung function testing. Now there's a lot of different causes of dyspnea as we talked about. And uh, for example, people with anemia can have dyspnea because their aerobic capacity is less. They use uh, more anaerobic metabolism when they exercise or do things. They produce lactic acid from that. Lactic acid gets buffered to form carbon dioxide, which then they have to excrete through their lungs. And so people with anemia, for example, something not to do with either the heart or the lung directly can present to you with shortness, with abnormal shortness of breath. We talked a little bit about anxiety and psychological factors, cardiovascular disorders of any kind. So this could be congestive heart failure, angina, valvular heart disease can all present as one of the presenting symptoms of dyspnea. Metabolic disorders such as a metabolic acidosis which leads to increased minute ventilation to compensate for it can lead to shortness of breath. One of the more common things that we see nowadays is patients with obesity and or deconditioning presenting with shortness of breath and trying to sort out whether their symptoms are due specifically to those two factors or something uh, else can sometimes be challenging. And then there's a whole group of pulmonary disorders, so anything that affects the airway, like asthma, parenchymal lung disease, for example, the disease such as idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, pleural disease, chest wall disease, pulmonary vascular disease, such as a pulmonary embolism, can all present with shortness of breath as the primary symptom. And then There's a group of disorders that affect primarily the respiratory muscles that are often unappreciated or underappreciated that can also lead to patients with shortness of breath. And I'm going to show you some examples of many of these here in the second half of the hour. Now, if you look in a clinic, a referral clinic at a referral center like like ours, and you look at uh, the causes of dyspnea, this is what one study found is that there was a significant number of patients that presented with lung disease, so asthma, interstitial lung disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, patients with heart problems, upper airway problems, deconditioning, gastroesophageal reflux can actually cause dyspnea when people wake up at night and have uh, uh, acid that's reflected up into the back of their throat that can sometimes get down into their uh, vocal cord area, and then a variety of other things. You can see that the majority of patients that presented had lung disease or heart disease, but there's a variety of other things that need to be considered. So when you take a history for somebody that comes in with dyspnea, it'd be very similar to what you've been taught to do for any symptom, okay? You wanna characterize it by looking at the onset and the duration. Things like the quality of the uh, symptom can be important. When does it come on? How severe is it? What makes it better or worse? What's the exercise capacity? For example, I had a a gentleman who was 80 or so who came to clinic because he found that when he walked two miles back to his pond, his uh, favorite fishing pond, carrying his uh, bucket that had weighed about 20 pounds, and after he went up several hills that he was starting to get short of breath and he didn't like that, okay? (laughs) Well, when you hear that story, you begin to be less concerned than the person who may come to you and say they're so short of breath that now they can't walk room to room in their house. So you always want to talk about, with a patient, what what is it that they're able to do and what's provoking their symptoms. And then there's associated symptoms. For example, is the patient having a fever, increasing cough and sputum production that might indicate an infection? Are they having uh, orthopnea, paroxysmal, nocturnal dyspnea, and bilateral leg swelling that might signify that they're having congestive heart failure? So associated symptoms turn out to be really important. And... If you think about how a symptom presents with dyspnea, that can be very important. So if you look at the differential diagnosis, for example, of somebody that presents with the abrupt onset of dyspnea, it's fairly limited, okay? You can have people that can present with a pulmonary embolism, okay? Now, it's important to recognize that pulmonary embolism can also present more insidiously, but pulmonary embolism is one of the common diseases that we see that presents with a very abrupt onset of shortness of breath. Likewise, people that have a pneumothorax or collapsed lung. Asthma can also present with abrupt onset dyspnea, although it can also present uh, more chronically. People with fast heart rhythms, an angela equivalent, in other words, cardiac ischemia that's presenting primarily as dyspnea, an inhalation injury, or an upper airway obstruction are all things that tend to present very quickly at times. Now, when you talk about what happens when the person lies down, it's common that people will tell you that they have what we call orthopnea, which is increasing shortness of breath in the supine position. And commonly that's thought of as being due to heart failure because when you lay down at night and you assume the recumbent position, if you have interstitial edema in your legs that gets reabsorbed back into your circulation, the pulmonary venous pressure goes up in your lungs and you can actually get early pulmonary edema. But it's important to recognize that there's a number of other things that can cause orthopnea. COPD and asthma can do it. People with diaphragmatic weakness can have orthopnea because when they lay down at night and their abdominal contents start to push up on their chest wall because their diaphragms are weak, that can encroach on the chest and cause uh, orthopnea. People that have large abdomens from either obesity, ascites, pregnancy, and have trouble laying down at night because of shortness of breath. And then even something as simple as nasal congestion. I've had people tell me that they had orthopnea, and I asked them specifically more about it, and they said, well, when I lay down at night, my nose gets plugged up. Okay? That has significantly different connotations than if somebody's having shortness of breath from congestive heart failure and wakes up having to sit by the window for 20 or 30 minutes at night in order to get their breath back. And the same is true for paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, which means that a person is waking up suddenly at night because of shortness of breath, okay? Again, the differential diagnosis for that would include congestive heart failure, but it's also seen in patients with asthma and COPD who sometimes wake up quickly at night and have to use their inhalers before they can go back to sleep. Um, People with obstructive sleep apnea who obstruct their airways at night can wake up very suddenly uh, and feel short short of breath Almost always in that situation, as soon as they're awake and they regain consciousness and muscle tone, the airway obstruction will resolve and they'll feel well again, usually in less than a minute or so. And then patients with gastroesophageal reflux that have reflux of acid up from their stomach into their esophagus and sometimes even into their glottic area can wake up feeling short of breath, oftentimes with an associated brackish taste in the back of their mouth. If you're thinking about perhaps that your patient has asthma, it's important to talk about different things that might trigger that. So do they get worse when they go out in cold, dry air? Are they worse when they get a viral infection? When they go out and mow the lawn or when they exercise? Those are typical things that might trigger an asthma exacerbation. And then if you go on into history, you know the history is still, I think, where it's at. I think. Uh, at least when I was in school, we were taught that 80 or 90% of the diagnoses that you make are going to be made by the history, and I think that that's still true. So these are a number of the things that can, can give you uh, leads in terms of why the patient's dysmic. For example, drugs like amiodarone, which is a cardiac medication, and macrodantin, which is an antibiotic, can cause interstitial lung disease. You want to know if the patient had infections, operations, particularly on their chest, trauma to the chest, radiation to the chest, which can cause pulmonary fibrosis. You want to ask them about their family history. Is there any family history of lung problems? And then social and occupational history are particularly important in respiratory diseases. Smoking history, obviously critically important. Have they worked in a foundry and have been exposed to silica? they worked around mechanics and, and uh, done brake work, for example, and had asbestos exposure. Both of those uh, particles can cause chronic interstitial lung disease. And then in the review of symptoms, you want to ask about other things that might give you some uh, hint as to where the problem may lie. And then you want to do your physical examination. And this is... A, perhaps an overly simplistic uh, uh, chart of some different physical exam findings and how you might interpret them. And I'm just going to go over some of these. For example, if you're watching the patient and they're doing what's called purse-slip breathing, okay? You've probably seen some, some of you have seen somebody purse-slip breathe is when they take a breath in through their nose and blow it out through their lips with their lips pursed. And what that does is it pre- promotes a, back pressure in the airway, that tends to splint the airway open because patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease tend to have what we call dynamic airways collapse and that can help to prevent that. So if you see pursed-slip breathing, you have a pretty good sense that that person has chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Jugular venous distension, so you examine the neck veins and they're elevated, tells you that there's an elevated right atrial pressure. Doesn't tell you why and there's a lot of diseases that can do that. Diminished breath sound intensity would be common diffusely in patients with obstructive airways disease, so severe COPD. It might be unilateral with somebody with a pneumothorax or collapse of their lung. When you hear those musical sounds of wheezing, we typically think of that as being associated with asthma or COPD, but remember that there's other things that can cause wheezing, such as congestive heart failure and the term cardiac asthma. Inspiratory crackles, typically associated with interstitial lung disease or heart failure. An S3 gallop on cardiac exam in an uh, older person signifies ventricular dysfunction, suggestive of congestive heart failure. Finger clubbing can be associated with a lot of different diseases. Finger clubbing is when your, your fingernails uh, get kind of a uh, convex shape to them, so they kind of they bow out like that, and there's some other findings as well that you can, perhaps you've read about or will read about. And it's been associated with lung cancer, uh, several kinds of interstitial lung disease, chronic infections like cystic fibrosis patients get. And then an edema of extremities, you know, if it's bilateral, suggesting congestive heart failure, or some other type of elevation of uh, systemic venous pressure, or if it's unilateral, perhaps suggesting a deep venous thrombosis, and uh, and which would make one think of perhaps pulmonary embolism as the cause of the shortness of breath. This is a list of uh, potential physical exam findings, and you can see that the majority of these are focused on the cardiorespiratory system. So here's some different uh, tests that you might think about in patients that have uh, dyspnea, and it should be directed after you've done your history and physical examination. You'll be learning, I think, more about these as the year goes on and certainly next year. If you're concerned about obstructive or restrictive lung disease, we would do pulmonary function testing, okay? Measuring uh, forced vital capacity, forced expiratory volume in one second, et cetera. For somebody that has lung disease or congestive heart failure, you might think about doing a chest x-ray. If you're worried that they're having coronary artery disease, you might do an electrocardiogram, either at rest or with exercise. If you're worried about asthma but they have normal lung function at rest, you might do something to provoke an asthma attack and this could be something like an exercise test which can provoke asthma or a methylcholine challenge test where you give a substance that tends to cause bronchoconstriction in people that have asthma but not in normals. If you're worried about the heart and valvular heart disease or heart failure, you can do an echocardiogram. If you're worried that the patient has anemia or thyroid disease, you can check the function of those. Pulmonary embolism, we typically now evaluate with a chest CT scan rather than a ventilation, perfusion, lung scan, but either of those are used in certain circumstances. And then when we're perplexed after doing a complete history and physical and we we don't have any clue and after some regular testing still don't understand why the person's having shortness of breath, We might do a cardiopulmonary exercise test, which gives us an integrated understanding of the physiology during exercise and helps us sort out is there a heart problem, a lung problem, or really no problem. So that's a really brief overview of some of the tests that you can think about given the differential diagnosis that you've generated from the history and physical examination. Now one particular test that's still, I think, and the newer range that I'll talk about briefly is uh, uh, brain atriotic peptide levels. And uh, BNP, as it's uh, called for short, has been shown to be released from ventricular myocardium, either the right or left ventricle, in response to elevations of end diastolic pressure and volume. And it's seen in congestive heart failure as well as several other uh, diseases that can affect the ventricles. Secretion of BNP uh, causes increased salt and water excretion, vasodilatation, and suppression of the renal angiotension system. So it acts as kind of an intrinsic uh, diuretic, if you will. And in patients that present with dyspnea, particularly it's been shown in outpatients presenting to the emergency room with dyspnea, a BNP level can help in differentiating congestive heart failure from non-congestive heart failure causes. This is one example of that. This is one of the earlier studies that was done where they, uh, at the end of the emergency room visit, had two physicians uh, decide uh, whether the person had come uh, because of heart failure, because of something other than heart failure, or was a person that had dyspnea uh, due to a non-cardiac cause but had a history of left ventricular dysfunction. And what they found is, is that if the BNP was over 100, okay, that that had a 90% sensitivity and 76% specificity in in categorizing the dyspnea due to either uh, this cause or this cause. And so you can see that uh, the false positive rate is fairly significant, indicating that there's other diseases other than congestive heart failure that can raise your BNP. But if your BNP was normal, meaning less than 100, you were quite certain that that patient did not have heart failure. This test alone turned out to be better than any of the physical exam findings that they did when the patients were in this study. So from this part of the talk, these are the things that I want you to remember, all right? That it's really important to recognize the multiple etiologies of dyspnea, okay? Many of which are not directly related to the harder lungs, okay? And secondly, I want you to remember that the history and physical examination are still the cornerstones of the evaluation with focused laboratory testing, I think, playing a a supportive role. So what I'm going to do now is uh, go through several cases with you. These are real cases that uh, I've seen over the years. And what I'd ask you to do is when we read through the history and physical exam, I want you to think about what we just talked about. And I'm going to ask you to, try to help uh, sort out maybe what the differential diagnosis of each patient is. So here's the first case, all right? This fellow is 46, comes into the emergency room for the abrupt onset of dyspnea. Past medical history was significant for AIDS with recurrent episodes of pneumocystis pneumonia. And on physical exam, he was tachypneic, had tracheal deviation to the right and decreased breath sounds over the left chest. Okay? So what would that make you guys think of? I'm sorry? Ah, I heard a pneumothorax. All right. What makes you think that? Yeah, so... It's, okay. So the trachea gets deviated in only a small number of things, all right? And one of them is if you have a tension pneumothorax... And what happens is that the pressure builds up on the side that the lung is collapsed on and starts to push the mediastinal structures to the contralateral side, okay? Anything else that made you think of pneumothorax? Okay, so the lack of breath sounds on that side. So the physical exam findings is what you've been focusing on. How about in the history? Yeah, okay, so it's abrupt onset. Okay. Again, there's a limited differential things that cause the abrupt onset of dyspnea. And you may not, at this point, know, but patients with AIDS that have pneumocystis pneumonia, pneumocystis causes these kind of cavitary lesions in the lung that are well-known to, uh, to rupture into the pleural space. And so pneumothorax is a, a well-known complication of pneumocystis pneumonia. And this, this gentleman had come back in with recurrent pneumocystis pneumonia and, uh, and a pneumothorax, okay? And you can see that this is a pretty black here because there's no lung markings. Things are pushed over to the right. If you uh, percussed the left side of the chest, how would that sound? be really resonant, wouldn't it? It should be because there's just full of air. Okay? So the treatment for this is a chest tube. It's kind of a funny-looking chest tube. kind of comes in and kind of goes around, but it does the job and the lung re-expands. And you can see now that the mediastinum is shifted back over to the left, where, more where it should be. Okay? All right. Good deal. You guys are one for one. All right. Here's the second case. This is a 27-year-old man evaluated for dyspnea and chest tightness. Symptoms were exertional, okay, particularly in cold air. They lasted for one to two hours and sometimes all day. He'd had occasional dry cough, but really no other symptoms. He wasn't a smoker. He worked uh, as a welder. In his past medical history, he had had asthma in childhood, but never been treated for it. His father had had a recent MI at age 54, and that was really what had prompted him to come to see us. His physical examination was normal, and we did baseline lung function testing called spirometry, which was normal, and a chest x-ray, which was normal. So what would you think about in this gentleman? You guys are a lot smarter than sometimes you give yourselves credit for. (laughs) Asthma. Asthma. All right. And why do you think that? Okay? So, there are a couple things that make you think about asthma in this case, all right? One of them is is that uh, he has typical symptoms, okay? They're worse in cold air, which is something that typically makes asthma worse, okay? Um, he has a cough, which is also consistent, but not specific for asthma. He works as a welder, okay? Welding fumes are well known to, to cause irritation of the lungs and can cause bronchospasm. In his past medical history, he'd been told that he had asthma in childhood, even though he'd never been treated, okay? So all those things make you think that this might be asthma. Anything else that you'd be worried about? How about, um, for example, what was he worried about? He was worried about, I can tell you, that he, his father had had an MI, okay? Now, any, what do you think about that? So I think somebody I heard maybe said he might be anxious about that. That's, that's a good point. So if you think about uh, coronary artery disease, all right, first of all, you have his age, which is pretty young, okay? So it's unusual to have coronary artery disease when you're that young. Symptoms could last all day. So usually if you have angina, okay, or chest tightness from coronary ischemia, it's not something that lasts all day because if it did, you'd go on and be having a heart attack every day. Okay. So that's that makes it less likely. Okay. And uh, so I would say that it's not impossible, but the pretest likelihood of this being angina, we I think we told him was we thought was pretty low. So what, what test would you do now? Oh, God, you guys are way too smart. <laughs> did they get into the, into the uh, computer? <laughs> all right, perfect. All right, so, so we did a methicoline challenge. There's two things that we could have done, all right? We could have done an exercise test and exercised him, uh, and then after exercise, see if he had exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, um, or we could try to provoke it with a methicoline challenge. Methylcholine is a substance that uh, causes bronchoconstriction at doses that a normal person wouldn't have problems with. But if you have what we call bronchial hyperreactivity, okay, you, you will bronchoconstrict uh, very briefly in response to methylcholine. And this is something that's pretty uh, rapidly reversible. And you can see here that what we do is we give increasing doses of methylcholine. This is cumulative dose units and we check this number called the FEV1, which is the forced expiratory volume in one second. So that's how much air comes out in the first second when somebody does a forced expiratory maneuver after they have a full breath in. And you can see that his FEV1 was coming along pretty good here until he got out to this dose, and then it just dropped over 40%. So this is a markedly uh, positive test. And this patient got treated uh, for asthma with inhaled corticosteroids and inhaled bronchodilators and had uh, improvement in his symptoms. What would a normal person graph look like? Um, a norm- at the doses that we use, um, this would just be flat across. Okay? If you give enough you know, if, if you get out to you know, this kind of, we only go up to 100 in our lab, but if you give enough, you can cause anybody to bronchoconstrict, so it's, a, it's just a matter of giving you know, the right amount. So, there's a third case. So this is a 62 year old man evaluated for a dry cough of two years' duration, progressive dyspnea over the last year, no fever, weight loss, chest pain, hemoptysis, or other symptoms. He was a smoker, and he had no occupational exposures. And on physical exam, he was short of breath with minor exertion. He had bilateral dry, inspiratory crackles, and he had clubbing of the fingernails. So this one's a little tougher. Isn't? What do you think about this gentleman? So what do you think? So so there's a couple things, all right? So he's had this has been going on for a while, okay? So it's not abrupt onset of dyspnea. It's been two years duration. Doesn't really have a lot of other symptoms to help us. Doesn't sound like he's having infections. Okay, he's been a smoker. And then we hear these crackles throughout both lungs. Okay, dry, inspiratory crackles. So what do you think about that? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so he's got, so this isn't rocket science, right? You just, uh, if, you, if you think about things in the way that we try to get you to think about them, it, it really is something that you can figure out in many cases just from the history and physical exam. So. So interstitial lung disease, which is a great big category of diseases, all right, typically cause inspiratory crackles, which are heard because of the late opening of alveoli during inspiration. Now, you can further kind of narrow that down because he's got clubbing, okay, and clubbing is seen in only a a number of the interstitial lung diseases. And so what, what test would you do at this point in this gentleman? If you if you thought that he might have interstitial lung disease, you do a chest chest X-ray. Yeah. Okay. There's a number of tests we could do, but so we did the chest X-ray. But I'm going to show you the CT scan because it was more uh, I think pronounced. And what we see here is this. He's laying on his stomach. This is his heart. This is his spine. Okay. This is the left lung and the right lung, and all this white that you see here is or most of it is abnormal due to scarring in the lung and it shouldn't be there. Okay, and I know you don't, haven't looked at a lot of CT scans, but this scan is markedly abnormal and it suggests that there's a a scarring process in the lungs. And so we did lung function tests which were markedly abnormal and suggested restrictive physiology. And then he actually had a lung biopsy and in a normal situation, the alveolar capillary membrane, okay, right here, for example, it should be very thin and fine. And here you see that it's expanded in all these areas because of the influx of uh, inflammatory cells and, uh, and fibroblasts, okay? And so this is a markedly abnormal biopsy, and this fellow was diagnosed with interstitial lung disease, a form called usual interstitial pneumonia, otherwise known as idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, where people get scarring in their lungs and the term idiopathic refers to the fact that the doctors were not smart enough to figure out why it happened, okay? All right. This is a 33-year-old woman with stage four cervical cancer treated with uh, incristensis, platinum, and bleomycin. And approximately a month after completing chemotherapy, she had an exploratory laparotomy done, performed in an attempt to debulk as much of the remaining tumor as possible. And during that time, she was given some supplemental oxygen. And four days postoperatively, she developed fever, dyspnea, progressive hypoxemia, which got to the point where she required uh, being placed on a mechanical ventilator. What do you think about this one? I'm sorry? Bleomycin, okay. So if if any of you have read... uh, Lance Armstrong's books, uh, when he had testicular cancer, one of, one of the reasons that he didn't get bleomycin as part of his regimen is because it's a well-known pulmonary toxicity, okay? And because he was a bike racer, they uh, developed a specific regimen for him that, that specifically avoided giving him bleomycin. Bleomycin toxicity is also known to be uh, enhanced, by giving supplemental oxygen. And even though in the operating room they were very careful about how much supplemental oxygen they gave this woman, um, these kinds of situations are well described where people who have had bleomycin and then get supplemental oxygen on top of that develop the rather abrupt onset of a kind of an acute respiratory distress syndrome type pattern in their lungs. You can see that her lungs are basically have significant amount of uh, airspace disease in both sides. And uh, unfortunately, there's no specific treatment for this. And this uh, woman eventually succumbed uh, to this lung disease. And on pathology, her, her lungs, shown here, looked more like liver than lung, really, because uh, you can see the lung is just completely consolidated. Um, and there's a lot of blood in the lung and hyaline membrane formation and, uh, and so this is a, a, a form of Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome secondary to a drug-induced injury. Okay? So again, knowing the history of the medications that she got and knowing what medications ca- can cause respiratory uh, problems helps you make the diagnosis. This is a 74-year-old man seen for a one-year history of worsening exertional dyspnea. He was an avid runner and was having to stop to rest with increasing frequency. And uh, after a minute or two, he was fine, and he would start off again. And he also described a sense of uh, tightness in his chest, which he described accompanied the dyspnea. And on physical examination at rest, uh, he was normal. What do you think about this gentleman? Oh come on, you guys! Angina, all right. What makes you think he has angina? It's a good thought. Who said angina? Raise your hand. Yeah, good deal. Good. That's a good answer. What? I'm sorry. Yeah. So he's got exertional symptoms that get better right away with rest. Okay. And his age. Okay. And he's a man, which is another risk factor for having coronary disease. So, and, and so he's not having chest pain, but many times angina doesn't always present with pain. It can present in a lot of different ways, with shortness of breath or tightness. And so what, what should we do with this fellow to evaluate this more? Okay, so we do an EKG. And so we did an EKG at rest, and it was normal. So then what should we do? Ah, right, man. So, we exercise him, all right? So, this is what happened when we exercised him, all right? Have you been through electrocardiograms at all? (laughs) Kind of? (laughs) All right. So, so (laughs) I want to ask you to interpret this. (laughs) So, the QRS interval represents the electrical uh, activation or depolarization of the ventricle, and the T-wave here is the repolarization of the ventricle, all right? And in between the QRS and the T wave is a segment called the ST segment, okay? And, at, and here it's pretty normal, but with exercise, you see how it drops down here? And he has, you know, really prominent here, but all throughout the lateral chest leads, V4, V5, and C, V6, he's got somewhere between probably three and four millimeters of ST depression with exercise, which is a pretty good indicator of exercise-induced ischemia. And he went on to have a cardiac catheterization done and had revascularization of his coronary artery disease, okay? Very good. So now we've got a 33-year-old woman admitted to the hospital with diabetic ketoacidosis. Blood gas on admission shows elevated CO2 and a low PO2 but she denied any dyspnea whatsoever, Okay, any other cardiorespiratory symptoms. And of note, when I talked to her mother, her mother said that the only thing she could remember was that when she took her to swimming lessons at age 10, the swimming instructors had brought her back saying that she couldn't take swimming lessons because she couldn't take a big enough breath in and she would sink to the bottom of the pool. Okay? <laughs> I'd never heard that before. <laughs> um, Physical examination revealed decreased breath sounds bilaterally without wheezing or crackles. She had marked use of her accessory respiratory muscles. So, you know, we usually look for that here. So you see people kind of going like this. They're using their sternocleomastoids to elevate their rib cage and breathe. And uh, she had paradoxical inward movement of her abdomen during inspiration. So what do you think about this one? There's something wrong with the diaphragm, okay? What makes you think that? It's a good good answer. What makes you, what, t- what clues you off that there's something wrong with the diaphragm? Yeah, so that's one, okay? And I want you to, you don't have to do it now, but sometime put your hand on your chest and your abdomen and take a breath in, okay? and they should come up together so your chest expands and your abdomen comes out at the same time. And the reason for that is, is that when your diaphragm contracts, it pushes down on the abdominal contents and actually pushes them out a little bit, and then it acts like a fulcrum to elevate your rib cage. Okay? So the normal pattern of breathing is for your chest and your abdomen to come out together. When you say that somebody has paradoxical movement of their abdomen, what you're saying is, is that they're going like this, okay? They're going, Chest is coming out, but abdomen is coming in. And when you see that, that's a real tip-off that the diaphragm is not working because what's happening is, is there's negative pressure being produced intrathoracically, but the diaphragm's not working, so it's actually sucking the diaphragm up and causing the abdomen to come in. Okay? Funny thing was is that this woman was not dysmic though. Okay, Why do you think that could be? I'm sorry? Oh, come on, say it again. Could be. So it could be that she wasn't doing anything. That's a really good thought. Okay. The other thing is, is that, that we thought is that, that this woman had probably been like this probably possibly her entire life. Okay. And So this was a kind of an adaptation to something that she'd lived with forever. So this is her chest X-ray. And again, I know you're not used to looking at X-rays, but the lung volume here is really tiny. Okay? And it turned out that this woman had probably congenital bilateral paralysis of her diaphragms. So neither diaphragm worked, okay? And she had markedly abnormal lung function tests and a markedly low oxygen level, but she wasn't symptomatic. And the only thing I could think of as to why that was is because I I thought this has probably been something that she'd had forever based on the history that her mother had given about the swimming lessons, okay? So... So this is a case where the, where the physical examination at the bedside really told us, almost immediately, what was wrong with this, with this woman. Okay. Anyway, these are lung, lung function tests, not very good, 30-something percent predicted. All right, so here's another one, 36-year-old woman evaluated after developing a right lower lobe pneumonia, subsequently worsening exertional dyspnea with prominent orthopnea improved with corticosteroid treatment for a diagnosis of asthma It also had hoarseness of her voice It also improved with corticosteroids and her past medical history had revealed that for seven years she'd had dysphagia and symptoms of aspiration okay and her physical exam was remarkable for a normal gag reflex but she coughed when i had her swallow some water she had prominent accessory respiratory muscle use normal chest auscultation, and mildly diminished peripheral limb muscle strength. I graded it as a 4.5 out of 5. You guys all remember the scale, I know. So, so what do you think about this gal? Come on, you're, you're six for six. She's got some kind of neurological problem, doesn't she? And what makes you think that? Uh huh. Yeah. So there's there's a whole number of uh, problems here that go way beyond what you would expect to see in somebody that has asthma. Okay. When we sent her, and so we sent her to the pulmonary function lab, and the technician called me from the pulmonary function lab, and this is her flow volume loop. So this is expiratory flow. Okay and this is inspiratory, and this is volume on the horizontal axis. And what she called me to tell me about was, you know, they look for reproducibility of the test. And she said, every time I have her do it again, it gets less. So the first one was here, and then it was here, and then it was here, and it kept going this way, okay? So she kept doing worse with each breath in, okay? So what do you think about that now? So she's got a neuromuscular problem, and every, and the more she does, the worse she gets, okay? And she's a young woman, and the diagnosis when we gave her tensilon in the pulmonary function lab, okay, was is that she had myasthenia gravis, okay? And myasthenia gravis is a disease where you form autoantibodies to acetylcholine receptors but block the neuromuscular junction and so the more you try to do so that people fatigue with activity, okay? And this is sometimes treated with prednisone, so the fact that she got better with prednisone had nothing to do with that she had asthma. It's that they were treating myasthenia, okay? So she got treated with myasthenia, and all of her symptoms went away. Now, the, one of the really take-home, probably the, one of the most important things I want to tell you about this woman is, is that Sometimes when doctors have a hard time figuring out what's wrong with somebody, they start to blame it on the patient, and this woman's doctor had told her that she was an hysterical housewife. Okay? And uh, this was after, you know, all these symptoms that they hadn't been able to figure out. And so one of the main messages I want to give you today, along with how to evaluate people with dyspnea, is if you're having trouble figuring it out, keep looking, okay, don't give up, because uh, it turns out that more often than not, there's something really often wrong with the patient, and you don't want to assume that there isn't prematurely. Okay. So I've got, the only other, I've got one more case, and I'm, it's, we're out of time. But I'll just go through this just really quickly. So this is a woman I saw with 62, evaluation of dyspnea. As a young adult, she'd been a world-class bicyclist, and she continued to ride up to 50 miles a day it's age 62, but she came to me because she was frustrated that she couldn't keep up with her peers that she was riding with, many of whom turned out were in their like 30s and 40s, okay. <laughs> On exam she was slightly hypertensive, otherwise normal. We checked her PF pulmonary function tests, her chest x-ray, her hemoglobin, her thyroid tests, they were all normal. And so, you know, I thought, God, if this lady can ride 50 miles a day at age 62 and all these other things are normal, I think it's unlikely that anything's seriously wrong with her. So we did a cardiopulmonary exercise test and her maximal oxygen consumption was 143% of predicted, which is markedly, you know, above normal. So so we were able to tell this lady based on, you know, these different evaluations that there was really nothing wrong with her, (laughs) which she didn't believe. (laughs) All right. So here's the diagnosis, right? If you have questions, uh, come up and, and see me after class here. Thank you.